My name is Zerbinesa. I'm a people of West, West Indian School. I've been in school only three years, but I'm in the first grade now. Do I start now? I am a Pueblo and a graduate of the Albuquerque Indian School. I took my training in the Home Economics Department and I'm not employed at the Western Navajo Indian School. I am a Pueblo and a graduate of the Albuquerque Indian School. I took my training in the Home Economics Department and I'm now employed with the Western Navajo Indian School. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. As promised, I have Dr. Preston McBride joining me for the program to talk about the deaths and the cover-ups of those deaths at U.S. Indian boarding schools. Preston is of Comanche and settler colonialism descent. He lives and works on Tongva lands, where he is a postdoctoral fellow at the USC Mellon Humanities and the University of the Future program. Prior to being at USC, Dr. McBride earned his PhD in history from UCLA and was the Charles Eastman Postdoctoral Fellow at Dartmouth College. His dissertation and book manuscript evaluate the health, environmental conditions, and the public health policies for the children at four U.S. Native American boarding schools. Dr. Preston McBride, welcome to Let's Talk Native. This project really started looking at cemeteries, and it, it actually is kind of reminiscent of what's going on now in, in both Canada and the United States. And I very quickly realized that cemeteries were actually uh, not the best thing to look at um, because they're, they only tell a partial story. They tell only the story of those who died at the institutions and were buried there. And so, um, you know, essentially there's a mismatch between the number of students who died and the number of students who were buried there because superintendents often sent home, you know, terminally ill children to die at home. So that deflected blame essentially from the institutions. And even, even with 
the students who died in federal custody on the school's grounds, there's an underreporting that almost always happens. Um, so Pratt and other Carlisle administrators would write to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs and say in their annual reports, you know, the health was good this year. And then X number of students died. My research found that realistically what would often happen is the number of students who died was really their estimate plus some. Um, and that still doesn't even account for uh, those who were sent home to die, which is a, another huge number of, of students. Well, I mean, but let's let's be honest. The the visual the visual uh, that is associated with um, with even with marked graves is pretty dramatic. I mean, most people can't imagine that you have to have a graveyard associated with a school. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't think most Americans or Canadians can say, wait, wait, did I have a graveyard where I went to school? I mean, uh, because it's an absurd proposition. I mean, so the visual of, of a graveyard and and again, at Carlisle Indian School, you know, this well kept, although very small graveyard, I assume by the, uh, you know, compared to what was probably the, the, the real loss of life there. I mean, it, it it's it's still pretty, you know. Um, disturbing and and the, and the idea that some of them literally had no names on them they they say unknown or un you know unknown I mean as it is let's let's be honest the names that are on some of these graves are names that weren't really the kids names anyway they were they were names issued to them as a part of this assimilation uh, system that was uh, at play here sure I, I you know it's stunning on a couple levels uh, you know on one level to your point you're right you know how many high schools you know these are boarding schools. They're a little different, but like how many high schools in the United States or in Canada for that matter have cemeteries? Um, none. For, you know, other than Indian boarding schools, the high schools, you know, don't have cemeteries. The other thing that's really stunning is that these were children and young adults. So uh, generally children and young adults are the healthiest demographic of any population. Essentially the, the, the most likely you are to live another year is when you're 12, 11, 12, 13 years old, basically the age of these students. Well, and that, um, that, that's a great point that you make because you, one of the things that happens is there's, there's this tendency to compare the death rates at these schools to what was considered a mortality rate that include infant mortality. So, so, you know, I, and I, so I wanted to make a stronger point on that. When you eliminate the, this idea of infant mortality from the mix, you realize that this the mortality rate at these schools is really e even more concerning. Yeah, I mean, and you, when you compare it to kind of what was going on in the United States at the time, you know, it, it depends on the school and the year. But, um, you know, generally the, the age-adjusted death rate for white children, young adults, roughly 15 to 24 in the United States, around the time that these institutions are happening, is around three per thousand. Boarding schools, it's between seven and 10 times that every year. And every year, you know, from 1879 until 1928, there was not a single year where Indian students, at least the institutions that I study, uh, don't die in higher numbers than their white counterparts in the United States. Well, and I saw that one quote that you had was that that the deaths at Carlisle during the census years were higher than 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 entire states that had native populations in them. And this is one school. I mean, that's an incredible number. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really hard to make comparisons because reservation data is notoriously awful, as is boarding school data, is boarding school, to, to be yeah. quite frank. Um, you know, I don't trust the, you know, I don't trust the annual report of the 
the superintendents of these institutions, just as I don't necessarily trust the annual report from the you know Indian agents that were overseeing reservations. And so reservation data is bad, but it, and it also includes things like you said, number one, children under five, which are the most likely of any population to die. Under five mortality still is you know higher for today than any other demographic. It also includes the elderly on reservations and importantly, it includes also the children who were too sick to go to school. Um, so you would, you would expect actually reservation death rates to be higher than boarding schools. Um, but I think the fact that boarding school death rates appear to be higher than reservations is really telling about the, the institutionalized conditions in these carceral spaces. Right, exactly. You know, one of the things that's, that's interesting is when I looked at this information that you had gathered about um, Pratt himself and, 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 and some of his, uh, his staff sending kids home to die uh, who were terminally ill. What was really striking about that is it appears that that might be part of the, uh, um, in contrast to what happened on the Canadian side, because I think some of what came out of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, which is a debacle all by itself on the Canadian side, was that part of the justification and the rationale and the reason that there were graveyards at residential schools is because Canada didn't want to uh, didn't want to foot the bill to send these kids home either dead or dying. So I mean that's that's even even more of a concern. I mean because I mean especially as you you know I I deal with this issue both on the U.S. and the Canadian side and um and there is <laughs> there's no. Uh, upside to this thing, and, and like I said, when I when I hear somebody like like Deb Hallen, you know, giving a quote in in the one article that I saw you featured in that says many Americans may be alarmed to learn that the U.S. also had a history of raising children or, or of taking children from their families in an effort to eradicate our culture and erase our, uh, us as a people. I mean, that's a quote from her, and and I'm thinking. Canada got the idea. I mean, Canada learned this process from the United States. It's not like, oh, and the United States did some did some of that too. And she also really avoids the atrocity uh, beyond this idea again of, of sticking the word cultural in front of genocide. Yeah, this was a, was an effort to uh, to eradicate our culture. No, it was an effort to eradicate us. And it's not just erase us as a people. There, when you're talking about the deaths here, I mean, I, one of the things that I laid out in my previous podcast was those five definitions of genocide. I mean, and and I've said this before, but it, it reads like the like the playbook for some of these residential schools. I mean, every all five of the criterion established by the international community for genocide took place at these residential schools. I mean, it's incredible. Every one of them. Yeah. I, you know, I found evidence of, of students being murdered, shot, you know, by school employees, shot while running away, um, you know, anecdotal evidence of, of students being beat to death by other students at the kind of order of school administrators. I mean, conditions created to, you know, destroy life. Um, that's pretty much exactly what boarding schools were for the vast majority of, you know, their time. They are institutions that basically ran underfunded, uh, institutionalized malnutrition, um, poor medical care, um, taking children from their families. Like that, that, 
is the most basic part of what boarding schools were. So yeah, to your point, all of the kind of constitutive elements of the genocide definition exist in boarding schools. And it was really interesting to see, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little later, but you know, with the TRC and kind of what the United States is doing, it's really tricky when essentially you have a government, a federal government investigating itself because it sets limitations on this. And so the TRC, the reason why they concluded that it was cultural genocide, it, it qualified genocide is because the Indian residential school settlement agreement set set up this, you know, the TRC body. And basically the TRC commissioners could not reference any law in Canadian uh, judicial circles. So essentially because genocide was a law in Canada, the commissioners couldn't allege genocide. So they alleged cultural genocide because it's not actually a law in Canada. And the interesting thing about that is two of the commissioners um, came out after you know the TRC was done and said what happened here was genocide. They they didn't qualify their terminology. They only qualified their terminology in the official report that you know was was submitted. And so you see this in the United States too. You know, I think we we like to and I think boarding schools more generally are often talked about in terms of cultural genocide, because at the end of the day, the kind of the impetus of these institutions was the destruction of languages, cultures, lifeways, and separating kind of the connection between children, their families and communities and land. Um, Death was, you know, to me, acceptable collateral damage um, of that process. Um, it may not have been kind of the idea from the beginning, but death was a part of the system from the beginning. It was lethal year after year and administrators did very little to remedy those situations. Well, and when we talk about things like depopulation, there, there are two ways of looking at it, right? There's two ways when, you know, depopulation is this, you know, nice word of way of describing killing people, I guess, um, or allowing people to die or and you have when you consider some of the sterilization uh, that is documented in some of these schools, you realize that depopulation becomes more than just something that you allow to happen. You you essentially make it happen. But the other thing is, we're talking about depopulating an area too. So one of the things that comes out of this residential school thing is the removal of of children from their homelands, you know, as if that hadn't already happened once or twice along the way because of trails of tears and stuff like that. Um, but you, you remove children from, from a land, which means the land no longer, they could argue that, well, there's not as many people living there anymore. You know, the native people don't need that much land, which we get into the, you know, obviously the allotment and, and, and many of these other, um, policies of of reducing uh, the land holdings of native people. But you, by removing people and, and, and then, actually severing those ties between the children and their parents that oftentimes would never be uh, reestablished. So, I mean, some of these children wouldn't have families to return to. So even as, as children aged out of these, these schools, the, the idea of that they would, they would, that they would return home and, and reestablish lives back there, that, so there, there's something else involved when we talk about depopulation. It's not just the idea of, of killing of, you know, of abuse um, and neglect, you know, uh, the idea of children dying through neglect. There's something more insidious about it when you talk about this, this plan to reduce our populations on our lands. I think it's really hard to look at boarding schools in isolation. 
you know, any sort of kind of investigation about boarding schools needs to look at the context of federal Indian policy more broadly, both before these institutions were established and afterwards. And to your point, you know, things like forced removals, reservation policies, um, you know, annuity kind of crisis and withholding rations uh, fed into conditions on reservations, um, which fed into why people, you know, parents, communities sent their children to boarding schools. Um, you know, many boarding school students were orphans, to your point, um, particu- at certainly particular schools. So many. But they were orphaned. Um, they were orphaned because of policy that had already been established, as you were, you were saying. I mean, the, the, the conditions on our territory were so bad that that the conditions of life were, were terrible. But those that didn't happen in a vacuum either. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think indigenous parents a lot of times face, you know, the very real threat of starvation. And some of them saw boarding schools as, um, you know, being promised three square meals a day. That sounds, you know, much better than starvation uh, to a lot of people. Um, if that was in fact true, when when oftentimes it wasn't. But and well, and, and, and continue. And, and some of that starvation was also a tool. I mean, there were there were. Uh, communities that were threatened to have their rations withheld if they didn't forfeit their children to these residential schools. So, so it wasn't just the idea that you could send your children someplace where they're supposed to be fed. Your own sustenance depended on uh, on essentially essentially yielding your children to this uh, to this policy. Exactly. The I mean, and this was codified into law. Um, you know, by Congress. Congress basically said, uh, you know, if Indian parents don't send their children to school, then we, or the Secretary of the Interior, can withhold rations, annuities, and everything else. Um, and so, yeah, people did face the very real threat of, of starvation. Um, and I think, too, you know, to continue with the context, you know, boarding schools also can't be separated from you know, the 60s scoop. And, you know, the adoption era that kind of not only comes after kind of the most deadly period of boarding schools, but also in conjunction with it. Boarding schools in Canada, as you know, you know, last until, you know, different rates, but 1996, you know, there are still, you know, four of the schools, of the four schools I study in my dissertation, three of them are still open to this day in the United States. Two of them still run by the Bureau of Indian Education. Um, So these, it's really tricky when you get into timeframes about when Indian education is. Well, and I know a lot of folks have also, oftentimes when I have this conversation will bring up um, the, the documentary Dawnland um, and what took place in Maine. And I had to remind people that that Truth and Reconcilia- Reconciliation Commission in Maine was not looking at residential schools as much as it was foster care, which is exactly to your point. Exactly. And they're very much connected. Uh, you can't get around them. Um, you know, ultimately, the control, guardianship, custodianship of children is important to any culture, any people. Um, well, that's why that's why it's listed uh, as as a form of genocide, right? Exactly. And, you know, to your point, kind of you made it the last podcast about, you know, for instance, with UN drip and why, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United States, you know, didn't vote for it. Uh, they eventually acceded to it. But um, it was the same thing with the genocide convention when it came out in um, you know, 1940s. Ultimately, the reason why um, the, the the last clause is in there is because the countries couldn't agree on what the definition of genocide was. And it was only because the, the governments of Canada, even the United States in particular, and Australia, um, didn't 
see at the time what they were doing as genocide. But they tried to limit everything else that they were doing away from the definition. So Lemkin's original definition, the United States and Canada both saw that as threatening, essentially, to what their program of, you know, elimination looked like. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and again, I think when we talk about you know, the idea that you can't look at this stuff in, in a vacuum, it is it's, – it, look, we start from this place that the United States and Canada – assert the legal right to even even take custody of children in the first place. I mean, look, in in the United States, they it wasn't until 1924 that they would pass a law that would essentially not just grant, but but almost force U.S. citizenship upon people. And, and it is done in many ways unsuccessfully. Now, why do I say that? Well, well first, we'll, we'll even back up farther. We'll go back to 1868 with the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, which was about granting citizenship to uh, to those who were formerly enslaved, you would argue, well, wouldn't that include Native people? Well, the reason it doesn't is because the language in the 14th Amendment says people that the United States had jurisdiction over, which they had never asserted that. In, uh, in, in 1868, they hadn't asserted that. In 1924... They know that 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 didn't that didn't quite get it done because they have to come back ten years later with the the Reorganization Act and try to redefine the status of Native people, and of course they also add in there at the same time this this idea of the this Johnson O'Malley Act, which would further um, push Native children into off um, to being edu- being educated off territory into, into the public school system. Every one of these things you can tie directly to. Uh, to them feeling they like they had checked boxes um, along the way through this this residential school era. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's ultimately a contestation over sovereignty. You know who has the right and who belongs and who doesn't. And uh, you know the United States um, as sees indigenous people as wards, domestic dependent nations. You know, emanating from you know kind of the Marshall trilogy, early Supreme Court cases that kind of revolve around. Cherokee removal, a lot of ways. Um, well, and, and, and this is still, uh, you know, there are current white supremacists that are still using. Isn't that uh, that I think Paul Gozar was one of the the uh, I think congressmen or, or any U.S. legislators, anyway, that basically, you know, said, said recently that that Native people were wards of the state. I mean, literally, still asserting that very, you know, that belief today. I mean, so this isn't. Just something that you know you you can attribute to the to the nineteenth century. This is you know look we're we're still we're still fighting these issues today. You're one hundred percent right. I mean the battle over over sovereignty, native sovereignty, uh, is something that is continually contested in courts between you know the federal government, the Department of the Interior, and Native nations, um, you know, especially over things like resources. You can look at kind of national monuments. And you know, one of the things that I found interesting from your last talk is, um, you know, the connection between, you know, restitution, and I know we'll get to this later, and, and kind of land back and, and stuff like that. And it, but I was thinking it's also about water, water back, you know, depends on where you are. Um, you know, the Shumash just here out and uh, I live on Tongva lands and what is now uh, the city of Los Angeles. And the Shumash just above us, um, you know, just submitted through their sovereignty, uh, through the Department of the Interior, um, a request to take back a huge swath of, of ocean territory. Um, 
and and these these issues about sovereignty, um, you know, ultimately won't get resolved because you know one of the powers believes in this doctrine of discovery, this terra nullius that that's where their supreme authority comes from. Basically, the fact that indigenous people are not humans, um, that you know they didn't use the land, uh, and that the Europeans, Euro Americans, had you know justifiable righteous conquest of the new world. Um, whereas you can imagine that's not the way indigenous people see it. Well, and, um, and on that note, I mean, when you consider when, when you, when you look at what these residential schools were doing, it becomes even further justification for this idea that we no longer need to be, I mean, look, the other thing that comes, that comes after the, essentially this era is the termination policy. You know, so yes, we've done we've done a good enough job in this assimilation policy that we no longer have to recognize them recognize them at all as as a distinct people, and 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 of course this is where when we talk about assimilation, and and it's one thing when somebody says, look, I want to go someplace, I want to assimilate myself to to a culture or whatever else, but when it's forced upon you, that still meets the definition of genocide because you are essentially them. Like before Lemkin, you have those uh, who are suggesting this idea of denationalization, this idea of stripping away national character away from somebody and imposing national character upon them, is is a war crime, and that's 1913 that that's being established, not 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 the 1940s. So, I, and so when I when I mention and when I say that assimilation is genocide, I I know there's even that is going to get some pushback from some from some folks. Yeah, I mean, the genocide debate is complex. You know, some people see it as, you know, a, a legal category, which it very much is, but it's also an analytical category. You know, according to the legal definition, there's no retroactive prosecution. So essentially, you know, according to UN, nothing before 1948 is genocide or can be like legally defined as genocide. Not punishable, um, but not punishable exactly. as genocide. Yeah. But the problem exactly. is, is what continues after that. And and this is where when you when you're talking about assimilation policies that still exist today. Day. I mean, we are. I have to have a debate with somebody about whether I am, am a U.S. citizen or not. I mean, I argue that I'm not. You know that the 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 U.S. Citizenship Act or the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 cannot be imposed upon me, and I still have the right to claim my nation as a my my ancestry, my people. I'm Mohawk or Gunyagahaga, and. That's enough of an identifier for me. I don't need to be a U.S. citizen or a Canadian citizen or, or, or any of those things. And where this becomes problematic, and I actually talked about this at the United Nations a few years ago, over the, the, the passport issue. The fact that, that we are denied the right to travel, and now even across the U.S.-Canadian border, without having travel documents that, that essentially— <laughs> essentially force us into U.S. or Canadian citizenship for the for the right of international travel. And I would argue that that still should be looked at as as a war crime because it is forcing citizenship upon a, a, a people who who know who either don't want it, reject it or or, or again, or who are having it forced upon them. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, is ultimately about consent. It's also, you know, it's again, comes back to sovereignty, but but consent and, uh, you know, what is forced. And I think it's very clear, especially in the Haudenosaunee case, you know, the Haudenosaunee peoples have been flat out rejecting U.S. citizenship since 1924, and that has remained steadfast. Where you have other nations who 
who may see citizenship as beneficial in certain ways, but it's, it, and that's the, ultimately the diversity of, you know, Indian country becomes uh, a little bit problematic in this, you know, because there are, you know, you get at this a little bit, you know, not only do you have, you know, hundreds of, what, almost 500 plus federally recognized tribes, you know, 500 plus unfederally recognized tribes, you also have the differences within communities. You know, what does the community itself see? What, you know, the traditional community, you know, what does tribal leaders see? Um, the youth versus, you know, elders, you have all these kind of differences in, in communities and we're never going to agree, but I think the vast majority would agree that the vast majority of Indian policy has never been consensual. It's well, always and, been forced. You know, and, and I think, you know, part of the, this, even if you look at the, the language of the Indian Citizenship Act, it, you know, the, the qualifier at the end says that nothing in this act should, uh, should be interpreted as the right to deprive somebody of, of what they said, tribal property or whatever else, whatever that means. I mean, we can get into a debate about whether the sale of our labor is something that, uh, you know, that we, that is conceded with that. So we get, we can talk about things like income tax and that kind of stuff. That, so we get into tax battles, not only at the sta state level, but at, at the federal level because of a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, and, and I, I agree with you. There, there's no question that many native territories, I mean, in fact, I would say, I would argue all native territories have experienced you know, uh, uh, levels of, of assimilation, forced assimilation. And some have accepted some of it. So some of it is not so forced. We've got churches on our territories and that kind of stuff, which is problematic for many people. Um, but we also, in, in, uh, in having to um, uh, reconcile or deal with, with, with things like state jurisdiction uh, in many territories. Look, we fight it as, as hard as anybody here as, as Haudenosaunee, um, you know, when, especially when it comes to things like trade and commerce and that kind of stuff. We're, we're going to enter into a whole other debate because of the recreational use of cannabis and, and what that's going to mean with, uh, with dispensaries opening up on Native territories. And it's, it's going to be reminiscent of what we went through with tobacco. So we, we're, we're going to have a lot of those fights going forward. But and the reason I think it's so important to, to revisit things like restoration of not just land. Uh, and, and when I say restoration of land, I do mean water and water rights and that kind of stuff. But but autonomy, one of the, the among the things that we lost and, and oftentimes, you know, maybe conceded, I guess what you could say, but was so much of our distinction in our, on our autonomy. And that was all part of the plan with residential schools. And, you know, so I think I think it's really important that we understand what took place at these schools. I mean, and when we talk about the the abuse and not just the loss of life, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, before we wrap up here. Um, but I, I I mean, give me what you, what your research is is kind of. Um, I guess presenting uh, to you as far as you, know, you've obviously challenged, you know, some of the narratives that have come out of these boarding schools. Everybody wants to talk about things like Jim Thorpe and Pop Warner and, you know, stuff like that. But, but, uh, you know, what is your research really, you know, showing you? I think ultimately my research really speaks to the fact that we know so little about these institutions. Um, even, even within indigenous communities, uh, and th that's purposeful, um, you know, because it's hidden. But, you know, ultimately, these were m much more lethal than we ever thought. 
Um, and it's not even close, you know, to put it this in perspective and it's really tricky, but number, I don't want to turn indigenous bodies into statistics, but sometimes statistics serve as a, as a comparison to like put things in conversation with each other. We don't think, we think of certain native atrocities. So, you know, you can think of massacres, wounded me, you know, you can think of trail of tears and stuff like that. And I always have to pluralize that because we're, it's trails of tears and it it happened several times, not just one time. And again and again. Um, And some people had multiple, you know, forced relocations, forced removals. Um, You know, if I'm finding that, you know, there are thousands of people who thousands of children, young adults who died in the institutions that I study. And just four, just four. And just four, and just yeah, four. Yeah. you know, if, and that's not even including all the students who are sent home sick, who I, you know, don't know what happened uh, to them. Although I can presume because they had tuberculosis or other infectious diseases that, you know, they likely died very soon after getting home. Many of them died on the way home. And may have taken some people from their community with them, not to mention. Exactly. It, you know, it, the reports, even the Miriam report, 1928 recognizes even, even earlier than that, you know, 1899, even before the turn of you know, the 20th century, you know, people, Indian inspectors are recognizing that children are serving as vectors, bringing disease from schools home um, to their communities. So, you know, if you extrapolate that out, you know, you're looking at a, kind of crude deaths in the magnitude of tens of thousands like this is this is a travesty a, a tragedy on kind of par with things like trail of tears this is not just about assimilation And I think, you know, truth telling and healing kind of require us to, to your point, you know, get a full and accurate accounting. You know, these lives mattered then, they matter now. Um, and we have to, you know, we have to do kind of our due diligence in, in telling the most complete story um, that we can. Um, and while that's hard and, you know, not all people may want that, uh, I think, Native communities are recognizing, even those who kind of have taboos around, you know, speaking of the dead, um, you know, are recognizing the importance of this. You know, not everybody wants to, you know, dig up bodies and repatriate them home, but some do. Some want, you know, communities want their children, their kin to return home and have a proper kind of, you know, proper ceremonies regarding their kind of their transitions to a different world. I think people don't realize how you know, constellated across the entire United States, these schools were, they were everywhere on reservation, off reservation, you know, most obviously west of the Mississippi because of the, again, that context, but, you know, in the East coast, you still have schools in North Carolina, you have Thomas Indian school, you know, up in New York, you have schools, in Maine. You, these schools are everywhere. And, um, you know, I think to, to Deb Holland's point in that article is, you know, most people don't know about this and why don't people know about this? Well, there's, yeah, it's, you know, it's hidden history. And, you know, at the end of the day, representatives are beholden to their constituents. And until 1924, and even afterwards, Indians were not constituents. Well, and, and I would argue that we still aren't. I mean, I, I mean, this is part of that autonomy. I mean, and this is where I mean, where I get a little concerned with somebody like Deb Holland, who who no longer 
is serving us, she's serving them. And so this is where some of this stuff gets difficult. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, on the Canadian side, what they how much they had to skirt around words like genocide because of what their legal framework allowed. They couldn't be truthful. They were they were they're almost bound by their own laws not to be. Yeah, you know, and I think it's yeah. Do I necessarily believe that the federal government is the right institution to investigate itself? No. Um, I mean, you, you know, are you even having trouble getting the federal government to avail some of the information, even in some of the, in some of your work? This was this was under previous administrations, but you know, the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, you know, submitted a bunch of FOIA requests to the Department of the Interior, Bureau of Indian Education, to just find out where records are. Um, you know, the schools that I study, I'm, I'm very fortunate that they are, even though records have been destroyed, lost to mold, fires, they generally are held in the same repository. They're in national archives locations across the United States, but in typically one of them. A lot of schools, you know, Genoa, uh, the Genoa Indian School Project just came out yesterday with their kind of death list. They, they found at least 150 and two Native peoples, Native students who died at that institution. And Genoa is a school where the records are dispersed all over the country. And that's to say nothing about kind of the institutions run by churches for which we have zero records. Um, and, you, but, and you know they kept records, though. I mean, they but they're records. just, they're just unavailable. Know, the missions in California, going all the way back to kind of, you know, 1700s kept very, very, very explicit records of what happened. Um, the government, you know, these records did exist at one point. I don't know if they exist now, but ultimately, you know, NABs wanted to know where the records were. And basically the federal government said, we're not in you know, the business of doing research for you. You're on your own, figure it out. Um, and even, even to this day, I think, I think the federal government struggles with knowing where the records are that are in its custody. Um, you know, you have boxes in national archives. They're, they're also underfunded. Um, you know, you have boxes of just, you know, random records that haven't even been looked through, you know, for decades and decades and that are unaccessible to the public or, you know, historians, native communities. Um, but ultimately the government does have records of some sort and we need those, you know, going forward and, you know, to the current kind of boarding school healing initiative that kind of Deb Holland has you know undertaken at the interior is really a fact-finding mission about where the records are it's not truly a, an investigation into boarding schools per se it is it is let's start this conversation and find where the records are yeah i mean so it gives you an idea how far into the future any real um any conversation about reconciliation can can even take place because you, we we are yeah we're i mean we could argue that that you know canada may have you know done a commission but we obviously know that they fell pretty far off the mark when it came to things like like quantifying the amount of deaths that took place at, at these schools you know and and you know one of the things and i've i've made this assertion and i and i know that some of the abuses that have taken place in the at the hands of churches in, including the catholic church go back to europe but i would argue that the unfettered access that they had to children, the, the absolute control that they had over children, including, you know, power of attorney uh, and, and all of this stuff over, over Native children, really 
gave a breeding ground for what we know today as the clergy sex abuse scandals that, that are not just rocking the Catholic Church, they're rocking other denominations as well. I would argue that the residential schools added, uh, if not a foundation, but it, it did add some foundation to this perversion that took place, um, you know, at, at the hands of these, uh, uh, you know, these churches. It's, you know, sexual violence was ever present in these institutions. It's actually something that's really hard to, to find out about, in part, again, because of, you know, whether the records were destroyed or whether they were ever reported is, is a separate question. Well, the church but, has know, been covering have, this stuff up for, you know, uh, off territory on, you know, amongst, you know, white children as well. So we know that it's going to be a cover-up. Yeah. You know, to, to, I think this is an important point is, you know, you have superintendents who impregnated students. I definitely have, you know, documentation of that. Um, well, and, and, and those, actually, and, and, and I wanted to mention that because, I mean, there, I've heard numerous accounts of, of babies that were, that were aborted because of these, you know, unplanned, unwanted pregnancies that happened at the hands of, of staff members. And which is even more absurd when you consider the, the role the churches have played, the Catholic Church in particular, um, uh, on, on their, their abortion uh, uh, campaign. So, I mean, it's when you so now not only do you have the, the children there, but you have young girls who are who were impregnated by staff members and. Um, and those and, and those babies not surviving um, the ordeal either. Yeah, I mean, you also have infanticide. You know, young indigenous women did not want to bring up children in that environment. They were afraid, you know, so these things exist. And I think, too, it's really telling that. So in 1976, when the GAO came out with its uh, report about sterilization, if you go further in that same document, You'll notice that they came out with, I think, three or four separate molestation charges against boarding school officials, not necessarily church related, but just Indian or uh, employees of the Bureau of Indian Affairs assaulting children. And there are hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. These aren't kind of one off, two off cases. Um, these are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds cases of molestation. Um, you know, ultimately, these institutions were sites of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, they were not pleasant places. Um, and the kind of the power dynamics, the hierarchies in them um, led to teachers, matrons taking advantage of young children. I mean, who, who, who do these kids have to go to? In a lot of ways. Who, who exactly. could these kids turn to? And I think it's really telling. I estimate that fully one third of all boarding school students ran away. That is a ridiculous statistic because ultimately that is kind of the biggest area where indigenous students had agency. They could run away. They could try to escape. It wasn't always successful, but they tried. And they often tried again and again and again. And they didn't care where they were going. They didn't necessarily want to go home. Well, they, I'm sure they wanted to go home, but they didn't care where they were going in that moment. They just wanted to get away from the institutions. And, and where so they yes. ended up may not have been any uh, granted any more safety than what they left. No, in fact, it was incredibly dangerous to run away. I have countless examples of students being run over by trains, falling off horses, you know, dying from exposure, um, you know, frostbite, losing limbs, you know, running away was dangerous, especially when you consider, you know, some of these children are young as four or five, six, you know, a four or five, six year old running away, even in a group of, you know, older children who may be, you know, 14, 15, 16 is still dangerous. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it, it is incredible. And, and even as we, we begin to um, flesh out some of these numbers, we, you know, the, the idea of what, what the cause of deaths were um, or causes of death is, is going to be a whole nother issue that, that may never be addressed. I mean, so how much of these deaths were uh, abuse over, over abuse? How much was neglect? How much was, you know, uh, again, we talked about the, the inadequate health care and the fact that the children would oftentimes die of very, very treatable ailments, injuries or whatever else because of the, the lack of health care or the lack of, you know, you know, sufficient health because of malnutrition and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's you you really have to blame the deaths on the schools. I mean, so whether we call them murders or not, and of course, we also get into this idea of semantics over whether an unmarked grave and, or a mass grave. I mean, it's, it's it, I even even heard native people say, well, they weren't mass graves. They were unmarked graves. Well, unless you know exactly when these children were buried, you know, and you know, how many at a time we, you know, we're just playing semantics here for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, in the institutions, the vast majority of students die from disease. Yeah. Um, but diseases don't act alone. You know, they, uh, they are, you know, brought about by conditions. And oftentimes what I find, I think this is a big takeaway from my research, is you essentially get frequently recurring epidemics. So in 1889, in Chamawa, boarding school still open to this day in, in Salem, Oregon, um, you have a series of kind of eight epidemics over the period of a year and a half. So where students get measles, then they get mumps, then they get influenza, and then that turns into pneumonia, and then they get tuberculosis because all of those diseases weaken their immune systems. And tuberculosis is already in the school. It may have activated, you know, an, an infection, a tubercular infection they already had, or kind of gave them a new tubercular infection, and they ultimately, you know, died in great numbers. Now, diseases, you know, don't, they, they have some agency, let's say they act, they're, they're, um, you know, they're living organisms. They, they do things in very predictable ways a lot of times. And when you have, you know, bodies that are affected by malnutrition, abuse, um, you know, they're overworked. You know, these are also forced labor institutions. You know, these children are getting not the care that they need. And under those conditions, diseases thrive. Um, and when you don't, and this is also too, you know, this is an era before antibiotics, the treatment for these diseases, um, you know, very, you know, they knew about germ theory at the time. It was kind of medical knowledge, Western medical knowledge is changing, uh, but generally they knew these diseases were infectious. And sometimes they knew how to stop that. Quarantine. They certainly knew you know, quarantine. Exactly yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very similar to kind of, you know, social distancing that, you know, we're doing today, vaccines, you know, all these students should have been vaccinated for smallpox, for instance, upon coming to the school, which often didn't happen. And there are plenty of smallpox epidemics, you know, well into the 20th century, which most people think of as kind of a colonial, you know, disease. But no, you know, I think you're, you're right to point out. And when I ascribe kind of responsibility for these deaths, the government at the time is saying it's indigenous people. They live in filth, squalor. It's all their fault. In reality, it's like, no, you know, look internally a little bit. It's the conditions of these schools because every single boarding school student should have been given a medical examination twice, once upon leaving the reservation and once upon getting to the school. And if they were sick, they never should have been admitted, according to, you know, government 
policy. Um, now, often that didn't happen. Superintendents are always admitting six students because they need the money. And when they admit six students, they're also admitting disease into the school. Um, I've never, you know, I've never so, heard um, uh, any numbers associated with Spanish flu and the role of the Spanish flu, um, since that was such a deadly uh, virus. Um, is there, has, I mean, that alone must have really taken its toll on, and I know there are still many schools in existence still. Yeah. So, I mean, so I'll preface this by saying the most lethal period in boarding school, residential schools is kind of the 1880s through kind of the early 1900s, 1880s and 1890s, extremely lethal with the exception of the Spanish flu. Um, the Spanish flu, the, the deaths you know, shot up. And so Haskell, for instance, uh, Haskell was located just a couple miles away from where the Spanish flu was first kind of documented um, at an army base. And those the soldiers were often in Lawrence, Kansas, recruiting Haskell students to be soldiers during World War One. So Haskell actually had two outbreaks of Spanish flu. They had the first outbreak of Spanish flu in April of 1918. And then the second wave also hit them in, you know, October 1918. And so their death rate uh, was actually far in excess of what the army uh, base was. And I think that's a, that's a, actually a telling comparison. Um, I have to dig up the exact, the exact numbers, but generally speaking, um, and their children. So the Spanish flu typically had a higher death rate amongst kind of teenagers, young adults. And, um, so outside of the early period, the Spanish flu was also the most lethal, um, but deaths, even though they decline, they still continue. And, you know, this is something that I think is also really important is, you know, Chemoa still again open. You know, they've had three deaths at the institution in the 21st century. You know, this is deaths in federal custody still happen. Well, and, and I got to wonder, I mean, how much do um, did all this death contribute to this idea of indoctrinating these children um, into Christian beliefs, and in fact, used as to say, "Well, you you, you obviously are, are sinners, and you are, you obviously your pagan beliefs are still you know." I, I just wonder how much this this ends up you know being used as, as. I mean, I know early on there was a lot of talk about like with smallpox that uh, you know that it was church, um, it was priests that were going to offer you know, healing to to. Uh, to indigenous people. I, I just wonder how much, how much the, this death and these illnesses would, um, would also play into promoting uh, further assimilation. You, you actually raise a really important issue. So basically at this time period, you have these kind of racialized beliefs about medicine, about health. And so there's on one hand, this belief that indigenous bodies are inferior genetically to whites. And so during the assimilation era, kind of as these boarding schools are happening, boarding schools are justified on the poor parenting, you know, so-called poor parenting or poor health of indigenous peoples. And it's the savior narrative of we're coming in, we're, you know, taking your children away to save them from themselves, to save them from your parenting, essentially. Um, it's really interesting because schools run into this kind of this catch 22 where there's telling indigenous peoples that, you know, your ways are backwards and you shouldn't do them anymore. Then it comes to tuberculosis. And what's the treatment for tuberculosis at this time? It's open air living. So 
they're, they're, you know, essentially putting boarding school students in teepees and saying, this is the way, you know, you need to treat this disease. And people are saying, well, wait, this is what we've been doing, you know, our entire lives. You know, this is the way we live. And they're like, no, that was, that was bad. This is good. And you, they couldn't reconcile between those two things. Um, but, but basically these, the unhealthy conditions of boarding schools further justified medical intervention into indigenous people's lives. You know, for instance, the, the BCG vaccine, the vaccine for tuberculosis is non-consensually tested on indigenous peoples in Alaska, the Tonawatan and Arizona and the Mexico border, you know, medical and, and the nutrition, um, also the kind of starvation in Canadian residential schools about, you know, what happens to children's bodies when we don't give them, you know, all the vitamins they need. Um, it sounds, it sounds bodies. eerily, um, uh, uh, familiar when you when you consider the you know what Nazi Germany was doing. Yeah, Tuskegee. You know, I think the United States has a long history of questionable ethical you know decisions when it comes to non-white people. Sure, sure. No, I, I, absolutely. Well, and 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 again, the when we talk about the deaths that occurred there, um, it's. It's it is it's really really pro, you know troublesome and it's it's really disturbing, but we also have children, the survivors of these of these residential schools and these survivors would be the ones who would be um, pitted against the United States as further encroachment onto our territories as further assimilation and further diminishment of our autonomy would happen. So so again, I I can't escape um, the the effects that residential schools had on the diminishment of both our lands, where we lived, how we lived, um, and, uh, and, and our, our, our distinction and autonomy, our sovereignty, um, and how much it would be diminished as a direct cause uh, of the residential schools. You know, I think looking at even the, the kind of, the kind of disparities, the social disparities, the health disparities, the educational disparities of today, uh, are also tied to boarding schools, you know, diabetes, for instance, you know, boarding schools change subsistence patterns, change diets. Um, and a lot of the health consequences of malnutrition, for instance, they, you know, documented are multi-generational. It's not just these children are malnourished and the effects end. Um, the children are malnourished and then their children suffer from it. Yeah, and We're not just talking about epigenetics it. here. We are really talking yes. about the fact that we, that we are creating, um, disabilities that would be literally inherited. Exactly. This is, this is, yes, boarding schools are trauma. Trauma has been shown to be passed on and, and that you're right. Epigenetics. This is something entirely different. This is about multi-generational health impacts of certain, you know, federal policies that continued, uh, and affect, you know, nations and communities today. The, well, the ongoing effects of boarding schools are still very much with us. Well, and, and again, this is this is really kind of feeding my my passion to to press um, for conversations about restoration uh, more so than than this idea or this concept of reconciliation. I think we have to you know get a, a better assessment on on what transpired not only at these schools but as a result of these schools and you know and work that that you are doing and, and others like you are it's so important. Um, in in this conversation, 
I look forward to having more conversations with you, if you don't mind. I mean, this has been, it's been enlightening to me. And I know when normally you're giving an interview, you're probably not talking to somebody who has as much background as I do even. You know, so I, I, I felt like this has been a great conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed you joining me on this program. And I really do look forward to having you join me again. I think that your work is going to be uh, a part of what we have to really include in any conversation as we talk about what what this investigation that Holland is talking about um, initiating. As you said, this is this is going to be decades before there's going to be anything meaningful that comes out of this. And, and I know the tendency is going to be to throw money at it. And we've seen what happens with things like the Cobell suit, where pennies on the dollar are offered as a way to, to you know, to, to pay off. And that was during the Obama administration, I might add, um, to pay off the wrongs of the United States. And I just don't think that we can let allow this one to get uh, swept, swept under a rug. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, number one, I'm grateful. For, for you having me here and, and to share this kind of important history. Um, not everything can be solved by money. I think this is going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to, you know, from, from scholars from communities from the United States, from legislators. And, uh, and it's gonna it's gonna be at all hands on deck. Yeah, and, and don't leave activists Neat. out of this because I think yes. we have to have the grassroots uh, people made aware because look, we've been kept in the dark to, to much of what um, is known as well. Look, we all have family members. We all, you know, you, you talked about your own personal experience. You're trying to, you know, getting involved in this research, uh, you know, from, from your own family ancestry issues. Um, you know, there are many people who know atrocities took place there, but we've never been able to quantify them and quantify the effects of those atrocities. And I think that's why it, you're right. We can't have the, you know, the government policing itself on this thing. It just doesn't work. We, we have to have native people and, and, and look, I think international community should be, uh, be more involved. It, it's a shame that, that the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people is, is as toothless as it is. Um, but I think trying to get, you know, countries that can look at this thing more objectively than the United States. Um, and frankly, more objectively than we can look at it, uh, I think would be, would be a value to us. Yeah, it's, you know, again, it's, it's something that's, it's, it's a long time coming, number one. And it's something that, um, we're a long way from even being in a situation to have any conclusions, essentially. You but know, but we, I still think it's so much more work to be done. It's really important that as information does come out, that we, we get it out there because I think we have, we have to create a bit of a, a groundswell, I guess, to, to make sure that this thing is pursued. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of my own people say, you know, the United States has been awfully quiet on this thing. And, you know, Deb Hallen gives a, you know, makes a statement, writes an essay and, uh, and everybody oohs and ahs over it, but, but what's happening. And, and even on the Canadian side, until another nation picks up, uh, you know, a firm that comes in there with ground pen penetrating radar to, to do another accounting of, uh, of, of these unmarked graves, it gets definitely silent in between this stuff. And, and we've got to make sure that we keep this, uh, you know, keep, keep the drumbeat going, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's five years between the TRC and the, you know, uncovering of the unmarked graves in Canada. Um, and 
more and more work is being done. You know, like I said yesterday, just yesterday, Genoa announced, you know, their, you know, the the death of that institution. Um, and we just have to keep keep working at this, trying to keep, you know, telling the truth. And you're right, getting out there. And so again, I think this is, you know, a great opportunity to to begin to to spread these this the stories and, and this history. Thank you for checking out the show. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV, and you can join us on our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. War pain to the sunrise, getting braided up as my pain dries. The blood falls from the red sky, my lady singing that war cry. We'll break them up like mannequins. Look them in the eyes, they panicking. Got draped up in a bear hide, we ain't Indians, we savages. Don't believe me, check my status. This battlefield is my canvas, and it might not take us platinum, but that hand drum is my anthem. We go bang, bang. On the 808s, you know we coming when you feel the bass. No deal with the devil, no soul to sell. We are red when we broke through the gates of hell. Savages, savages. Native to the land you've inhabited Home of the braves and the ancestors Who walked the land you damaged Man, we hail from a side of that atlas That practice throw weaves on baskets Carve masks on cedar plaques As we live by the law of the land Don't take what you can handle Don't break what you don't understand Goddamn, we back again Kill the Indian, save the man Pull the knife from my back and I go berserk I don't make friends, I make feelings hurt Ill behave, man, I'm on my worst No new friends, I put family first Underneath the mask, I'm a monster on my people's back, I'm a conquer. But before I reconcile, man, I'll add this to my profile. My grandpa was a savage, people savage was his style. Savages, savages, homie, we them savages. That's how they gon' label us. Thanks to all the cameras, we savages, savages, homie, we them savages. Forgotten languages, goddamn, ain't that a bitch? We savages, savages, homie, we them savages. That's just the way we live, so my kids, kids will be some savages. Savages.